Section Zero of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy in England in the Seventeenth Century, Volume One, by John Tullock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume One, by John Tullock. Preface My aim in these volumes has been to describe a movement hitherto imperfectly understood. In depicting the great struggle of the seventeenth century in England, our historians have very much confined their view to the two chief parties, betwixt whom it may be said to have been fought out. The religious forces of the time, which influenced so deeply the national history, have been roughly classified as prelatical on one side and Puritan on the other. In point of fact, these forces were extremely various and complicated, and we still wait an adequate account of them. A great history of this great period, which shall do justice to all the impulses then moving the national mind, and the powerful characters which they called forth. We may have to wait long. The yet unspent prejudices and passions of the struggle, the necessity of at once sympathizing with, and yet critically regarding the most diverse religious phenomena, and the vast mass of documentary material which requires to be sifted and illumined, constitute difficulties in the way of accomplishing such a task which only the highest historical genius can surmount. In the meantime, I have endeavored to sketch in the following chapters one very significant and not the least powerful phase in the religious history of the seventeenth century. At the commencement of the contest betwixt the Parliament and the King, there was a moderate party which was neither Laudian nor Puritan, a party of which the hapless but heroic Falkland was the head, and with which many, if not a majority, of the most thoughtful minds of the country sympathized. This combination, which was even then more intellectual than political, shared the common fate of all middle parties in a period of revolution. It disappeared under the pressure of violent passions and the urgency of taking a side for the king or the parliament. But the principles with which it was identified, and the succession of illustrious men who belonged to it, made a far more powerful impression on the national mind than has been commonly supposed. The clear evidence of this is the virtual triumph of these principles, rather than those of either of the extreme parties, at the revolution of 1688, which, and not the restoration, was the natural outcome of the preceding struggle. The same principles, both in church and state, have never since ceased to influence our national thought and life. Their development constitutes one of the strongest and, as it appears to me, one of the soundest and best strands in the great thread of our national history. It is of importance, therefore, that their origin and primary movement should be understood. I have spoken of the latitudinarians of the seventeenth century as in some degree a party, but they are rather, as Dollinger somewhere says of their representatives in our own time, a band or group of spiritually related savans, than a party in the strict sense of the term. They pursued common objects, and so far acted together, but their combined action resulted from congruity of ideas, rather than from any definite ecclesiastical or personal aims. It is the inevitable characteristic of a moderate or liberal section in church or state to hold together with comparative laxity. The very fact of their liberality implies a regard to more than one side of any question, a certain impartiality which refuses to lend itself to mere blind partisanship, or to that species of irrational devotion which forms the rude strength of great parties. This characteristic makes the action of such a moderating force all the more valuable, and it may be safely said that no ecclesiastical or civil organization would long survive its elimination. The rational element in all churches is truly the ideal element, that which raises the church above its own little world, and connects it with the movements of thought, the course of philosophy, or the course of science, with all, in fact, that is most powerful in ordinary human civilization. Instead of being expelled and denounced as merely evil, 
rationalism has high and true christian uses and the church which has lost all savor of rational thought of the spirit which inquires rather than asserts is already effete and ready to perish the movement which i have described in these volumes appears to me the highest movement of christian thought in the seventeenth century i am far from disparaging the theology and literature of prelacy or of puritanism during that eventful and fruitful period there is much in both that still deserves perusal and may be said to have permanently moulded and enriched our national intellect there may be single writers on either side of more unique genius than any i have sketched it is nevertheless true that the stream of christian thought runs more free and rises to a higher elevation in the rational theologians of the time than in any others in the case of the cambridge platonists it is eminently true that with all their faults philosophy in england never reached a more ideal height a summit of more pure intellectual contemplation than it did in them english philosophy became tainted at the revolution with a certain political bias and it may be a question how far it is yet emancipated from it perhaps it is least emancipated from such a bias in the school which is supposed by many to be the most prevalent and popular amongst us at the present time deeply interested in the principles expounded in these volumes and the writers who first advocated them in england i have had sincere pleasure in endeavouring to do some measure of justice to both the one and the other i have felt this pleasure all the more that some of these writers have hitherto received scanty acknowledgment it is something of a misfortune for religion and the history of the church that the men who secure most attention in their own day and afterwards are by no means those distinguished for christian moderation violent and picturesque characters the fervid and zealous missionary the eloquent fanatic the dogmatic and denunciatory theologian are all apt by their prominence to throw men of quiet thoughtfulness and tempered and rational enthusiasm into the shade churchmen like hales and whichcote are forgotten while the noisy champions of extremes are remembered and live in the historic page i have derived so much pleasure from the repeated study of hales and chillingworth and again of whichcote and his cambridge compeers and cherish so warm an admiration of their great gifts of christian reasonableness that i should rejoice if i have done anything to restore the images of men who appear to me the very best types of the english theologian manly and fearless in intellect while reverent and cautious in spirit footnote may i be pardoned for expressing my astonishment that the university of cambridge has done nothing to give us new or critical editions of any of the cambridge platonists there is a special difficulty in the case of henry moore whose writings are at once so voluminous and so forgotten but surely the pitt press would not be unworthily employed in issuing critical editions of cudworth's intellectual system of the universe whichcote's sermons and aphorisms and above all john smith's select discourses and cambridge possesses in mr john e b mayer of st john's college a student of the literature of the seventeenth century well qualified to superintend such a task all the accessible editions of these works are poor and which coates aphorisms and even his sermons in a complete form are scarce this is hardly fair to writers who did so much to adorn and illustrate this great university at a trying period of its history End footnote. in a time like our own i have thought these sketches peculiarly appropriate the questions discussed by the liberal theologians of the seventeenth century are very much the questions still discussed under the name of broad churchism our present parties have all their representatives in the earlier period the closeness of the parallel not only in its great lines but in some of its special features must strike every attentive reader we are nearer the seventeenth century not only in our theological questions supposed by some to be so novel but in our scientific theories than we are apt to think and if this should incline any to despair of ecclesiastical or theological progress it may also serve to convince them that the conditions of real advance are only to be found in a wide and intelligent comprehension of all that has gone before 
in the spread of a thorough yet wise criticism and the increase of the simplest christian virtues in every church patience humility charity there are even enlightened men now crying out for a new theology which shall once more mould into a unity the distracted experiences of our modern spiritual life but such a theology cannot spring from the ground nor yet descend as a ready-made gift from heaven christian science has far outgrown the efforts of any single mind the days of augustinian dominance are forever ended it can only come from the slow elaboration of the christian reason looking before and after gathering into its ample thoughtfulness the experiences of the past as well as the eager aspirations of the present if these volumes shall help any to understand better the spiritual problems which harass our own time in the attempt which they make to revive the questions of a time gone by and to restore the faded images of thinkers who deserve to be more remembered than they have been my purpose will be fully served st andrews september eighteen seventy two end of preface